Good evening, everyone. It's wonderful to be with everyone here today. Um, I was going to do um, Psalm 37, and I'm touching on it a little bit, but I'm actually going to be doing from Acts 16. So if you want to turn there, it'll be 16. I'll be focusing on 22 through 29. But way I reason why I went to this direction was... Um, as I was looking at this Psalm 37 and thinking about the, the times that we're in and just wanted to offer an encouragement to the church because I think all of us probably at times are feeling this uh, feeling like aliens in this world. And, um, and so we, uh, as I'm looking at Psalm 37 and it says, Don't, do not fret because of evildoers. Do not be envious towards doers of unrighteousness. And uh, I think sometimes for Christians, as we um, feel the weight of our own sinfulness and we deal with that, and then you look around and you just see everyone just, you know, having their best life now and doing whatever they want. They don't feel any um, guilt over what they're doing and no shame. Uh, it can You can be led to be envious at times or at least like, how long, oh Lord, will this go on? And, uh, and so this is just an encouragement when you look and it goes on to say, trust in Yahweh and do good. Dwell in the land, cultivate faithfulness and delight yourself in Yahweh and he will give you the desires of your heart. And then there's that one line that caught my attention there. It says in verse 10 of chapter 37, yet a little while the wicked man will be no more and you will look carefully at his place, and he will not be there. And the lonely, lowly and will inherit the land, and will delight themselves in abundant peace. And, um, and so I think just faithfulness in the church is a church that is cultivating the land, as you know, going out and making disciples, and, and, and also just delighting yourself in the Lord. And so um, if I could name, name this, I would just say worship in the midst of tribulation. And uh, it's a common story, Paul and Silas. We, we learn it in Sunday school, and uh, it's uh, a very common uh, story in children's books. But there's a lot of profound truth within that, that those few verses within that story and so uh, a biblical worldview will produce worship in the midst of tribulation. Um, something that you see just to kind of give, lead up to those verses is that uh, in, in chapter 16, 1 through 21, we're seeing uh, the church is a devoted church, is an active church. The early church is an example for, for us today. At the beginning of Acts 16, we witness a strong and growing church. Um, 16 verse 5, it says they were strengthened in the faith and increasing in, in number daily. The church lived in a great time of persecution. They had, um, the, now the Gentiles are coming to faith and the Jews and all these things that are animosity that's going on. And then you had Rome uh, later in time. You had uh, persecution where uh, Christians were being burnt by the government um, and used as lamps in, within their cities. So they're experiencing great persecution during this time. And uh, they were gathering together. That was essential for them to gather and, and be together and they, uh, to strengthen the souls of the disciples. 
encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And that's uh, before chapter 16 and, and chapter 14. So the source of their strength derived from the assembly of the church, uh, devotion to the word and prayer, and the use of spiritual gifts that edified the body of Christ during times of suffering. Uh, they were active, not passive. They were passionate about evangelism, uh, they, in which resulted in the growth of the church, cultivating the land. They did not utilize entertainment to draw the crowds. They didn't need smoke machines and laser shows. Uh, they proclaimed boldly the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they preached the word of God verse by verse and studied the verse, and they used discernment, and they, they examined the scriptures, and the Bible was sufficient, and, and the preaching was sufficient, and the people clung to every word spoken and longing to understand the mysteries of God. And this act of church traveled through various regions, preaching the gospel, taking risk, facing opposition, persecution as the Holy Spirit led them. And God led them to towns where the seeds of the gospel would fall on fertile soil. Uh, that's the, the great thing about evangelism, that we just do the work and we just trust in the, the work of God to, to, do, to draw the people, men to, to himself. We see in Acts 16.6, they said that they desired to go to Asia, but the Holy Spirit forbade them from going there. And we, we understand in John chapter 3, verse 8, it says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes and from where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so we, we see that, that they were just led by the Spirit. They were active. They were in tune with what God was wanting to, where, the, where they wanted to go, where he wanted them to lead, um, where, to, where he wanted them to go. And then we see in 1614, uh, it says that it's not by their eloquent speech, vast amounts of knowledge, methods to draw people. The Holy Spirit is the one who is working in the hearts uh, of the unbeliever to give them ears to hear and faith to believe. And we, we see that in Lydia in, in verse 14. And then the Holy Spirit must lead the church and, or else it will be driven by sin-led opinions and preferences. If we depend entirely on God... Um, he'll lead us to those who have ears to hear. And uh, we must be active in missions and willing to listen and follow the will of God. And that was something that was a learning experience for myself when sometimes you get that, that habit where you want to convince people until they say yes, <laughs> that kind of thing, especially with your children. But we just have to trust God that he's doing the work and, and it'll be in his timing. And so as we're going through this chapter and up to leading to our story, we see that um, all these things that are happening within the church, it's growing, they're being led by the Spirit, they're, they're, they're studying the Word of God, but then there is also that persecution and tribulation that they're facing. And so just something to think about, you know, how do we face, how do we react when we face opposition? Um, we're in times where you're going to experience it if you haven't already, and it comes in different forms. And so we see that Paul and Silas sought a place of prayer, but a, a possessed slave girl uh, and was was antagonizing them for days. I mean, this was the, she was following them around, and she had a spirit of deviation. It says, 
And there's also some other terms that, if you look into it, like the python spirit or a mythological serpent believed to guard the temple and, and, and the oracle of the Greek god Apollo. This is the spirit that was, this is paganism that's happening in the city, in these towns. And we had this girl that was antagonizing them. And increasingly, the evil spirit caused the girl to shout out truth that caused confusion, and which is interesting that she was causing confusion but speaking truth. And she says, these men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And this is a true statement. And however, the words the Most High God would have been, under, been understood also as Zeus by the people for the Gentiles of this town. And so Satan loves to take the truth and twist it to deceive, and this annoyed Paul. And so he commanded the spirit to come out of her in the name of Jesus Christ. And so you see this church active, led by the spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit to confront this and defeat the spiritual opposition. And the mark of a true believer is one who is willing to take up their cross and follow Christ and obey his commands and preach truth regardless of the cost. And Steve Lawson said this, he said, a life of resolve comes with a price tag. You will be tested by the lure of the world. You must turn a deaf ear to the crowd and live instead, and, and live instead for the approbation of Christ. There will always be a cross before a crown, Sacrifice before success, reproach before a reward, the call of discipleship will cost you popularity, possessions, and position. But God will use your commitment. The grace of God will be multiplied in you if you cultivate a fixed resolution to live for the glory of God. And so what we see in verses 22 to 23 that an authentic church will experience tribulation. We see that it says, the crowd rose up against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off of them and proceeded in order to, uh, and ordered them to be beaten with rods. And then they had struck them with many blows, and they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And so we see the result of doing this good deed of casting out this demon and freeing this poor slave girl from spiritual bondage was anger among the people. But why were they angry? So, so angry that the chief magistrates tore off their robes and proceeded to beat them with rods. And you look at this, and if you're thinking of this and just kind of without knowing the context and knowing the story, perhaps you would say the people were angry because the masters of slave girls lost their future profits from their, her fortune telling. Uh, that would make sense. The masters had a reason to be angry, but why would the crowd be angry and why would, when they didn't benefit at all from the, uh, this girl financially? And why would the public officials, the government officials, the judges be angry, so angry to tear off their robes and beat these men? We find the answer to this question in chapter 16, 19 through 21. It says this, but when their masters saw their, that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, here's, here's the reason. These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which are not lawful to us to accept or observe, being Romans. 
And this brought to memory of the story in Pilgrim's Progress, the Vanity Fair. And I'm sure all of us have read that at some point. But we see in here Christian and faithful. They arrive in the town of Vanity uh, and on their journey to the celestial city. It's a place where the, they held this, this fair. It was filled with parties and debauchery. And as they entered the town, they remained focused on their voyage. They understood Jesus' words that if anyone comes, to, comes after me, they must deny themselves and take up their cross. And so they, they're entering into this, this fair, and a crowd gathers to taunt them and revile them. And some are calling upon others to smite them, it says, because they would not participate in their sinful ways. And this leads to their arrest and, the, and for disturbing the peace. And after being questioned, they were severely beaten and locked up in an iron cage to be made a spectacle for the multitude. And faithful was the first to be called before the judge, Lord, hate good. And faithful lived up to his name and remained faithful to Christ, his convictions, and proclaimed in the proclamation of the truth. And the reaction of faithful's, uh, faithful's faithfulness uh, is the declaration by Mr. Blindman, um, the foreman of the jury, that clearly this man is a heretic. Judge Hategood is only too happy to order the execution of faithful according to the laws of the land. And what you're seeing here is that the masters were engaged, uh, enraged that these, the slave uh, was, would no longer make profit for them now that Christ had delivered her from this spirit. However, the crowds and the chief magistrates rose in anger when the slave owners told them that Paul and Silas are proclaiming customs which are not lawful to them to be accepted or to be observed. They were not arrested and beaten because they were helping this girl. And they were, they were arrested and beaten because they were preaching something not authorized by the government. And this is what we're starting to see happen in our own nation and around the world. And so we look at this and we, we think about what's happening. Do you think that when persecution comes to the United States, that they will accuse you of helping deliver people from bondage of sin? Would they say, good job? Would they celebrate you? Would they celebrate you if you said homosexuality and transgenderism and sexual morality and all these things that are sin and you've, you've preached to them and they've come to Christ and, and their lives are transformed? Would they say, good job, you're wonderful? No, they're going to say that you're preaching a false gospel and that it's a false Christianity and that you're a false Christian, and that the, this, your gospel is a gospel of hate and intolerance, which is causing violence to others. This is the direction we're seeing the world going in. And so that could cause fear, and it can cause a lot of uh, anxiety, and, and also maybe you wouldn't find your delight in Christ. But then we go to verse 24, and we see... That there, it says that, and he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So I would, as we're looking at this, think about what could be your prison. Not only did they throw them into a dark and cold prison cell, but they clamped their feet in stocks. They had no trial, no legal representation, no defense, and Paul and Silas suffered severe beatings with rods until their flesh had open wounds. And then the soldiers pinned their bleeding legs in the wooden clamps in the inner, most isolated part of this prison. 
And why? For preaching the gospel which was not authorized by the government. And so what would be your prison? Perhaps it feels like your prison could be sickness. People often think that. You know, our financial difficulties, relationship problems. And of course, God uses these things to, to test our faith and to sanctify us and direct our, redirect our focus upon him so we're dependent on him. But in this context, what would be your prison? If you don't shrink back from the truth, your prison could be rejection from your family, from your friends, retaliation from an employer, censorship by the social media, or literal imprisonment for preaching the truth. And we've seen that uh, not only in other countries. Uh, just the other day, I, uh, someone that was uh, thrown into prison for street preaching, and, uh, and they were legally in, within their rights. Um, and so what, those are something that we just need to think about. What would be your reaction in those moments? What would be your reaction amid tribulation? And so we see in verse 25... It says this, but about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And so sounds echoed in the dead of the night, deep in the prison's isolated cells. You can kind of imagine those in the movies where you hear the drops of water and and things it's just dark you can hear a pin drop and sometimes maybe groans of men that are complaining or uh, crying out in in agony or drops of blood flow from their wombs from the beatings of the rods and their bodies screaming with pain from the wooden stocks that they were that was clamped upon their legs but where the sounds of groaning and complaining coming from the cell of Paul and Silas no, there were sounds of voice. They were Paul and Silas not crying out for apologies and not crying out for willingness to renounce and say, All right, I, I'm, I give up. I won't do this anymore. I'm not going to preach anymore. Just let me go and, and I'll be on my way and I'll go back and make tents and, and do my own thing again. No, you didn't hear that coming from the, from the cell. You heard joy. You heard delight coming from the cell. And it was not based upon emotion of the moment, because if it was based on emotions and not on something more profound, then they they would have easily been crying in agony and maybe even doubting their faith. But no, they, they had unshakable faith and knowledge of their Savior, and he was worthy to to be it, it was it they it was, they were worthy, he was worthy of being persecuted and, and facing these beatings and these, this, this horrible situation. And they devoted themselves to prayer and hymns of, to, to God. And so here they are in the cell, legs clamps, blood flowing from their legs. They're, 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 it would be a scary place and it's an isolated place. And they don't know what's going to happen. There's no trial. There's no prosecution. There's no lawyer that they can call. And yet they are rejoicing and they're praying and they're singing hymns of praise to God. And this brought to mind another story by Richard Warmbrandt, uh, who wrote in his biography, uh, Torture for Christ. And he said, it was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners. As it, uh, as it is in captive nations today. 
it was understood that whoever was caught doing this received a severe beating. A number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching. So we accepted their terms. It was a deal. We preached and they beat us. We were happy preaching and they were happy beating us. So everyone was happy. A brother was preaching to to the other prisoners when the guards suddenly burst in, surprising him halfway through a phrase. And they hauled him down the corridor to what they called the beating room. And after what seemed to be an endless beating, they brought him back and threw him into the cell, bloody and bruised on the prison floor. Slowly he picked himself up, his battered body painfully straightened his clothing and said, Now, brethren, where did I leave off when I was interrupted? And he continued his gospel message. I've seen beautiful things, he says. That is what a Christian does when their faith and their delight is in Christ and not in the situation of the moment and not based off of emotions, but off of the truth of God's word and what he is for us and what he's done for us. And so the question would be, how will you react in the midst of tribulation? Will you curse God and renounce your faith? Will you complain and place blame? Will your reaction be like the one in Jesus' parable that says the seed was sown on the rocky places and when they hear the word, immediately they received it with joy, but they have no firm root and are only temporary. When affliction and persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And we see this is the beauty of the word of God that explains these things. This is why the church has church discipline and and all these kind of things. We see that people come and they, they play the part for a time. But persecution takes place. We see it in Acts. We see that, that you know, the day of Pentecost, people came to Christ, but then they got comfortable, and then persecution comes, and then they spread, and they go to other areas, and they, they start fulfilling uh, that kind of framework that Jesus laid out, where you're going to start in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so we, we're seeing that cultivation of the land. And then we see that God is sovereign over our blessings and our tribulations. And we, we see that in the life of Job. Job um, is a righteous man. Satan needed God's permission to test him. And not only that, but he suggested to, to Satan to do it. Hey, what about that guy right there? And so we see that God uses these kind of tribulations and, and hard times sometimes to sanctify us and to test us. Um, and we live in a fallen world, and, and so the evil will come upon us. However, God is working all things for our good and for his glory. And so through sickness and difficulties and tests and trials and it, all these things strengthen our faith. And so it helps us to redirect our, our focus upon Christ, the object of our faith, increasing our dependence upon him. And in the moments of persecution, he utilizes our lives and sufferings and deaths to fulfill his purposes. And so a devoted life to Christ will find joy in the pain. And that sounds crazy, but I, I think that in those moments when you're experiencing those really hard tri- times of tribulation, uh, you, know, you think about people that are experiencing physical torment for Christ, and it, it's by, by the grace of God they're able to endure that. And it's the same if we're not even in that kind of extreme situation. If we're 
relying on Christ, we'll find the comfort in the midst of others of, of that time of pain. A person of prayer will find comfort in calamity. A biblical believer will trust in the unseen because their faith is grounded upon knowledge of God. And a life of prayer connects us to the object of our faith, Jesus Christ, who is interceding on our behalf. And in moments of despair flows worship based on theology, the knowledge of God. We hear the voice of God and learn about him through his word. And in moments of anguish, God's word comes to memory and it renews our minds and strengthens our faith. And James tells us in uh, chapter 1, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So when the government punished the disciples in Acts chapter 5, I always am, it's an amazing story, just the, that few, few lines that, that is of 41 and 42 of that chapter. And it, they're preaching the gospel, they're preaching in the name of Jesus, they're told not to do it anymore, they were locked up, and they, it says that they rejoiced that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus Christ. And that's just amazing that they were locked up for preaching the gospels, told not to do it anymore. And they go back out and just like the preacher in the jail cell that went back to his cell preaching the gospel again, they went and they went to the temples, they went to the highways and the byways and to, the, to home to home preaching the gospel. And so when government and friends and family and employers and society in general attempt to silence the gospel, we must stand firm. And a biblical worldview will produce worship in the midst of tribulation. And um, John Piper, I think it was, that said that missions exist because worship doesn't, because people are worshiping themselves and other things instead of the God of the universe. And so we go out and we proclaim the gospel so that they become worshipers of the one true God. And in verses 26 and 29, we see that it says this, and suddenly there came a great earthquake, and so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. And when the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? In their moment of agony, God delivered them through a magnificent display of power. God shook the prison walls, opened the doors, breaking the chains of bondage. And the guard was afraid they had escaped because for if, they, if he would have lost these prisoners, he would have lost his life as well. And we see that the result of this was, how do, I be, how, how do I get saved? And God used their response in the midst of persecution to draw this jailer to Christ. And the fruit of their faithfulness was the salvation of the entire, entire household of this jailer. And we see that, in the midst of all these things, Paul 
once said this in 2 Corinthians 4, that we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but through our outer, though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Our affliction is momentary, and yet it produces an eternal weight of glory. The glorious benefits outweigh the eternal, the temporal sufferings of this life. On one side of the scale, you have the endurance of these tribulations for the sake of Christ. And on the other side, you have the fruits, the conformity to the image of, of God, of Jesus Christ, we, the, the salvation of lost souls, and the glory of God manifested in the midst of tribulation. And so we see in all these things that we can find peace and, and delight in in our situations. So I don't know what everyone's facing. And, you know, we, we all face different circumstances. We all have our own different type of prison. Uh, sometimes it's just our own battle with our own sinfulness. And sometimes it's our family members, our friends, young people, friends. It'll be hard sometimes, especially in these times when you stand up against what the world is saying is correct and the redefining love. But when you stand firm, you'll find that you'll find delight and peace in Christ and that he'll bring you comfort in those times. And that the, the result of it will be the growth of Christ's church and that people will come to Christ. And so in conclusion, the authentic Christians who are active and boldly proclaiming the gospel and living a life devoted to Christ will experience tribulation. Your prison may be literal uh, it could be persecution from friends, family, co-workers. They will call you intolerant, unloving. They will call your biblical Christianity unauthentic and false. However, we cannot be defined by the world's standards and categories. We have, if we have a biblical worldview, we will remain faithful to Christ. Stand firm on the truth of God's word and respond with prayer and worship, counting it all joy to be considered worthy of suffering for Jesus Christ. And we are all destined and deserving of hell and our, for our sinful rebellion against a holy God. However, Christ bore the wrath of God on our behalf. The suffering in this life is worth it, for it is temporal. And the purpose of 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 all of these things, then and the and the alternative would be eternal damnation. But he rescued from us, and it reminded me of just now of Jonathan Edwards' uh, quote, where he says that for the Christian, this world is the the only hell we ever face, but for the unbeliever, it's the only heaven they'll ever uh, experience. And so, when you think about that, that it's worth it. 
All of these things, suffering for Christ, suffering to live holy and pleasing to him, speaking truth, standing firm in that, not backing down, and, and going out and proclaiming the gospel because we love people so much that we, we don't want them to be lost. So we stand firm and we preach truth. In the end, the faithful life of a believer will produce fruit with eternal repercussion. Christ-likeness and the salvation of lost souls all for the glory of God alone. And so when we find ourselves in the midst of tribulation, our response ends up being like the hymn. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. And when the temper would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. Those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. He promises, his promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. For my life he bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied, he will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast till our faith is turned to sight when he comes at last. And so the good news is he's coming soon and everything will be made new and we will dwell with him for all of eternity and be with him and see him as he is and will be like him. So let us rest in that, delight in him, and go and cultivate the land, make disciples without fear and trembling. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for these tremendous stories that sometimes we, we look at as something that's so simplistic, but when we think about what would be our response in those moments. And so I pray, Lord God, that we would be faithful in all things. And that in the midst of tribulation and trials, that we will stand firm and that we will be bold and that we will be a church that's active, not passive, and passionate about holiness and, your, and faithfulness in all things and also passionate about lost souls. And let us go and make disciples and see Christ glorified in all that we do. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.